1: All right, welcome everyone back to another edition of New Books in Education. This is your host, Ryan Allen. And today I'm really excited to bring a book that I think everyone should be concerned about or thinking about. And this is The Real College Debt Crisis, How Student Borrowing Threatens Financial Well-Being and Erodes the American Dream. And this is from Prager, published this month, 2015. And this is from Dr. William Elliott III, Associate Professor in the School of Social Welfare at the University of Kansas and Melinda Lewis, Associate Professor of Practice in the School of Social Welfare at the University of Kansas. And Melinda, thank you today for uh, joining me.
0: Thank you so much. Great to be here.
1: Maybe tell us, tell our audience a little bit about yourself and a little bit how you and uh, William uh, got this project going and what interests you about this.
0: Yeah, no, it's actually... you know, the more that people know about our work, sometimes the, um, more notable it is that we're writing in the space of college debt, because, um, I am the assistant director at the Center on Assets, Education, and Inclusion at the School of Social Welfare. Most of our work is around the relationship between, um, asset holdings and asset development and educational outcomes. Um, so it's related to, um, financial uh, well-being and um, kind of financial standing and educational attainment. But we really kind of came to the discussion around student debt kind of in a roundabout way. So our interest was not first in uh, financial aid and student borrowing. It was in um, the evidence that suggests that students who approach higher education um, from an asset-empowered perspective have stronger educational outcomes and are better able then to use higher education as our economy and our country really intend, which is as a platform for upward mobility and really the lever through which most American children are to realize the American dream. So when we kept encountering this growing concern about rising student indebtedness, fewer options for students to finance education without borrowing. It became clear that if we didn't talk about uh, the outsized role that student loans were playing in the financial aid landscape, it would be very difficult for us to create the space in public policy, in financing, and really just in the debate uh, to talk about assets and the power of assets. So we came to college debt um, from an kind of asset uh, policymaking and practice um, perspective uh, very different than those whose work has kind of centered on the role of student loans as a part of financial aid.
1: Okay, fantastic. So you're kind of coming from this different angle that I think could possibly add to the conversation. Um,
0: well, I think it points us to some different questions. You know, our, our um, the question that we pose um, in the book and that we've talked about a lot is um, the conversation around student debt um, tends to be really polarizing. Either those who say you know, debt is bad, therefore student debt is bad, or those who say higher education is good, therefore debt to finance higher education is fine. Um, And we think that both of those are really fairly unhelpful ways to start this conversation, um, which we believe um, reveals clearly that higher education is absolutely valuable. It's more valuable in today's economy, really by a lot of metrics than it ever has been. The wage premium is um, large, growing, and very powerful. At the same time, um, the um, role of student debt uh, in financing that valuable education has been to erode its value among those who have to borrow to go to college, thereby exacerbating the inequities that are already a part of our education, um, kind of educational pipeline. So the question that we think is really important, Um, is not, you know, is debt bad or is education good? But instead, are students who borrow to go to college getting the same return on their educational investment and therefore equally able to use that education to advance in our society as a student who doesn't have to borrow? It's an equity question that we're interested in. And I think that we are pointed in that direction somewhat uniquely because we came at this uh, thinking about the role that education plays in our society uh, and as a lever for upward mobility.
1: Okay, fantastic. Yeah, I know you come at it from that question uh, of sort of uh, does the student who goes to college, graduates, but has outstanding student debt achieve similar financial outcomes as a student uh, who graduates from college without uh, And you and you come about it and you you have a couple real life examples and you kind of talk about where those come from and, and how those play into that.
0: Yeah, no, I'm glad you asked about that. This writing of the book has been um, a really rewarding experience. And I think somewhat uniquely so because we opened the book with our own narratives. You know, we're, we're researchers, we're academics. Um, there's a lot in the book that talks about uh, the, you know, lays out the evidence um, that suggests that we are poised for a new paradigm in financial aid and talks about scientific revolutions um, in other disciplines. There's some heady stuff there, um, but we started the first chapter. Chapter, juxtaposing my own life story with that of um, the director of aDI uh, and my colleague dr. Elliot um, and um, used our own stories really intentionally um, not because you know we think that we are representative of the entire nation but because we um, the contrast in the um, degree to which we've been able to use our own effort and ability, which is the American dream calculus, right? You work hard, you apply uh, your innate talents, you should succeed. That's what uh, children are taught from a very young age. We were inequitably able. We have been inequitably able to benefit from our application of effort and ability, um, in large part because of the role of college debt. Uh, so Willie lays out um, his own story. Growing growing. growing up in poverty, um, and achieving extraordinary, um, intellectual and academic, um, you know, at an extraordinary level, um, well-accomplished in his field, getting a PhD, um, you know, his list of affiliations and publications is pages long, um, and yet has not been able to realize the same economic foundation for his own children, for his retirement future, um, and for his, the kind of, future generations of his family um, as I have been, um, really not because of any extra work on my part. Um, you know, he has a, another degree than I do uh, and has certainly achieved um, more in a lot of respects. Um, but My parents and grandparents paid for me to go to undergraduate and then graduate school. um, And I had asset assistance in buying a house, not because my family is independently wealthy, um, but because they had enough of an asset base that then can be get an asset base because that's the way that um, the uh, 21st century economy is really set up. Um, And so we use those stories then um, to set up the later conversation about what does that look like in the aggregate? How are children who have not, you know, millions and millions of dollars, but some asset base to help them then get through college um, from without having to compromise and kind of literally mortgage their own futures, um, how does that affect their ability to reap the gains uh, of what they accomplish and how hard they work um, in that education and then how does having some asset base in young adulthood help um, individuals and households establish a financial future um, for subsequent generations and, you know my husband and and I were able to start saving something for retirement as soon as we got out of school. Not a lot, but something. Um, And with the power of compounding interest, that something is going to be valuable to us in a way that, millions, literally millions of Americans today are not able to do because when they get out of college and graduate school, even if they're in one of these innovations in financial aid, the income-based repayment, some of the ways that we've tried to make student loans less onerous for uh, borrowers on a monthly basis, those serve to divert income from the accumulation of assets retirement savings, savings for one's own children's education, to debt repayment, in many cases for decades, right? We make those um, loan payments affordable precisely by extending the period of repayment um, so that we then um, are solving one part of the problem, lenders getting their money back, borrowers reducing their delinquency and default. But just like that balloon that you squeeze in one place, we're creating and exacerbating problems in other places, um, particularly by compromising um, individuals' ability to build an asset base that this economy makes so crucial. Sitting with us on the panel tonight, um, when we do the book release event, is going to be an economist from the the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and they just came out with some new research within the last couple of weeks um, that shows a causal link between student indebtedness and um, delayed home ownership and delayed household formation. People living with their own parents longer, um, not because they think that sounds cool uh, or because they haven't figured out what they want to do with their lives, because they are diverting this very resources that would have allowed them to establish an independent household to repaying college debt. Um, because in many cases they didn't have other viable ways to pay for college education, um, particularly as we have really shifted those costs from public responsibility onto the shoulders of individual students and their families.
1: Right. Right. I think that sort of can be yeah, a, uh, a way to describe my generation, almost Sometimes it's almost like a meme of us living in mom and dad's basement after we graduate. And it's it, it certainly, uh, uh, I think everyone is aware of this, of this problem, but you know, no one really understands like, what that's actually going to mean. And I guess we're just now getting information and data and seeing if you know, this, this can uh, potentially adversely affect the economy and, and some other things and, and set back a generation uh, comparatively to other past generations. Um, can
0: I- no, that's a really that's a key point, and it also it it also really calls into question um, just the way that our economy is supposed to work for people. So we're interested very much in what are those kind of macroeconomic effects. Um, you know, what are we going to see in terms of we're seeing even changes in demographics, age of marriage. I mean, there are all kinds of ripple effects that, as you said, we're really kind of just beginning to see. But we're also interested, really, even put kind of more fundamentally in what. does does this mean for what children have a right to expect the future may hold for them um, and what they can really expect to be able to get when they Follow the rules. They they work hard. They study hard. Um, they you know go to college. Exactly what we tell them should then guarantee um, to some extent a you know a reasonable chance at, at making it at the American dream the way that we understand it. Um, and that's why um, the kind of asking the right questions. You know not is that individual who's still living with mom and dad better off than if she hadn't gone to college? The answer is probably yes, right? There's still that human capital accumulation, but instead, is that student as much better off as she would be if we collectively invested in higher education um, as a um, good that has significant public collateral benefit, if we provided policy options to help families accumulate assets from the time that their children were born um, so that they could approach higher education as um, you know, asset-empowered um, stakeholders mm. in their own future, uh, and if we were um, kind of honest about the full accounting of the cost of student debt, which is far more than just what that monthly payment is.
1: Right. right. Can I ask, uh, in, in, your, in your book, where where is most of your data coming from, or, or what sort of the data set that you guys use?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and so this book is a little bit different than um, you know what we might do for an academic journal. It's much more it's, it was one of the really fun things about writing a book is that you have the space to pull different pieces together and to really develop an argument and some of this narrative in a way that we wouldn't in um, a piece that we would do for an academic journal. Um, So there's some different things going on in the book. Um, We have a couple of chapters where we really um, do a review of other people's great research about the effects of student debt. Um, So kind of laying out the evidence with this piece um, using um, Thomas Kuhn's work on scientific revolutions. Um, Then we highlight this Um, kind of the evidence that suggests that we are poised for a scientific revolution in financial aid, um, which comes when um, a given paradigm or kind of a given approach fractures in its ability to solve the problem. And so we lay out what we're seeing in delinquencies and defaults and effects on um, home ownership and retirement savings and net worth, in um, failure to facilitate optimal educational outcomes too. So that research comes from lots of different places. Sure. Certainly the work that's been done at the Federal Reserve um, Bank of New York, some work that Robert Hilton Smith has done for Demos. Um, we had him actually come to Kansas once and he's done some great stuff on asset accumulation. Um, so aggregated from a lot of different places. Then um, Willie's also done some of his own analysis looking at um, the effects of student loan debt on different kind of cohorts of individual students by race and ethnicity and um, socioeconomic status, but also in types of institutions. So it's where we've been able to see, for example, that student loan debt affects how long it takes a Graduate to reach the middle of the income distribution, really affecting then kind of how long it takes to reap the gains of those years of deferred earnings in pursuit of human capital accumulation. Um, so there's some of that kind of new research as well. And there's some policy analysis in the book, too. We have a chapter um, that looks at um a kind of critical analysis of some of the current policies that are touted as solutions in the student loan arena around, um, you know, the um, pay uh, pay it forward approaches or, you know, kind of the idea that you're borrowing, you're just promising to pay back um, after you get done, the income-based repayments and some of the other loan modifications, um, and even this idea of free community college. So um, looking at some of those different pieces and doing some policy analysis of each of those. So um, it it tries to to pull those together, bookended by um, our own narratives, and then a kind of case study um, and at the end of children's savings accounts as a a, a meaningful alternative, not the only alternative, certainly, but um, a meaningful alternative to student debt, really in anticipation of what we often hear, which is nodding heads, yes, yes, student debt is a concern, but what else are we supposed to do? And trying to break free from that um, because we think that um, there are not only our options, um, but that if we constrain ourselves with this fear that if we take away student loans, then those children who aren't independently wealthy will never be able to go to college at all, that that is falsely denying um, that there are uh, choices that we face in the financial aid arena.
1: Right. Right. And and I, I guess, can I ask you if uh, I know the book hasn't come out yet, but um, presumably you, you've talked maybe to some policymakers or, or yep. other administrators, things like that. Can you kind of maybe talk about some of the receptions uh, or some thoughts that, that you've heard from them or, or, or
0: anything that they might... Yeah. Yeah, no, and and these are, you know, the book is in many ways a continuation of a lot of conversations that we have been having and and we're certainly looking forward to more of those. I mean, I think in general, um, we find that the idea of, you know, we need to be asking these questions about equity and kind of return on degree uh, are mostly positively received, Um, especially because we start with... um, Real clarity about the fact that you know, education is still a good. I mean, we're in the, we're in the education business. We still certainly believe um, that um, there is a um, critical role to be played by higher education in the lives of individual children and in the future of our society, um, and. But that we need to be asking some of these different questions, really looking at different metrics to assess the extent to which we have a problem. For the most part, fairly positively received. Um, I think that um, where we get most of the pushback is kind of in this. But, you know, if you criticize student loans, then. Those might go away. And then what? You know, then what do we do? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that we have become somewhat blinded to the relative, you know, recent, relatively recent innovation that student loans are or our dependence on student loans is in the financial aid arena um, and um, somewhat Um, blinded to the uh, retreat, the public retreat from the finance of higher education. So uh, I think we get a bit of kind of reflexive defensiveness, not, you know, no student loans are great, but we're afraid of what might, um, the the kind of chasm that might be left um, if we take student loans away. When we talk about some of the individual policies, there's somewhat more pointed pushback. There are those who really believe that income-based repayment is, you know, the answer to um, the student loan problem. Um, And that's because they're looking at different, a a different problem, really. You know, if you think that the, if you define the student loan problem as delinquency and default, income-based repayment is a lot better. Mm -hmm. Um, If you define the student loan problem as um, hindering students' ability to um, equitably and optimally benefit from their pursuit of higher education, income-based repayment is decidedly not much of an improvement and may, in fact, in some cases be worse. Um, Similarly to um, the proposals for free to your education. Um, If you uh, define the problem as just, you know, education is too expensive for the individual student, then that's an absolute step forward. If you're looking at equity, In our education system, then the idea that we might solve the problem by funneling students who can't afford choices to only certain types of institutions, whether or not those institutions are the best fit for them is not necessarily much of a step forward. So um, I think that you know a lot of the pushback that we get or a lot of the places where we've had debate um, comes back to this um, core of how do you, how do we collectively define the problem? And when you're looking at the problem through a different lens, um, then you're going to judge differently uh, the solutions that are
1: proposed. Sure. And I think some, some of those ideas uh, kind of in European countries Income loans, and pooling, and things like that. Uh, did you guys do any uh, analysis or look at any uh, countries around the world that may have, you know, have some policies that we could bor- potentially borrow or that could work for our system?
0: Yeah, that is a great question. The answer is no, not a lot. We've done only a very little bit of that and it's mostly been, you know, because we're going to be a part of a particular event or conversation or, you know, talk with a particular journalist who's really interested in some of that international comparison. I think certainly we'll see some more of that in the policy space as some of the presidential candidates propose um, ideas that have, you know, very explicit origins in um, other countries around the world. Our reason for not going too far in that direction was not because we didn't want to look at it. It's certainly something that is, um, you know, of individual intellectual interest to us. And certainly much of our asset building work, um, has very clear, um, kind of conceptual origins in places like Singapore and the United Kingdom. So we're, we're familiar with the idea of kind of those international connections. But really because a lot of the assertion of the book is that higher education plays a particular and somewhat unique role in our American story. Uh, you know, unlike a lot of other developed nations, we have said that the way that we are going to provide opportunities for children is not through um, a Overly robust social um, welfare system. It is through education as welfare policy, really, education as opportunity. Um, and that we believe that that should be equitably available. That we, you know, we're not, we're explicitly not going to track students into particular careers at very young ages. We, you know, want an education system that has lots of potential on ramps. Um, and we want wide open choice uh and you know we really believe in this idea of telling children you can do anything and be anything um if you're you know talented enough and you work hard enough so because we as a nation have collectively vested higher education with this particular function in our economy um then if we want to um kind of step away from the policy system that is supposed to undergird that, we have to renegotiate that understanding of our social contract. Uh, And certainly, um, you know, polling widely suggests that um, Americans still believe that education is the way that children should be able um, to advance in our society. Um, even as more and more worry that that ladder is not um, really a tenable option for their own children,
1: so any sense of sort of where we're heading and where where the system could could be going and, and maybe someone you know, who has kids right now and then you know eighteen years or whatnot, they are over long and, you know what is it going to look like for them yeah to-
0: well. And that, for, for me, is not just an academic uh, discussion. I have four little kids oh, okay. myself, so right. I'm very much a part of the uh, you know regular conversations at my house. Not just because it's what I do for a living, but because it's it's our future as right. well. Um, you know, I think that. I don't have certainly a crystal ball. Uh, And I think, in fact, that the next couple of years could be really decisive in that. Um, We're seeing a level of attention to issues of higher education, not just financing, but policy being really questioning. Um, what kind of a higher education system um, do we need? Um, what are we willing to pay for? We're seeing that play out not just in the presidential election, but in state capitals mm-hmm. around the country um, and in you know individuals' own families. So um, I think that we could see still a lot of shifting, but certainly a lot of the premise of the book is that we are poised at a place where the status quo is really um, not... Um, Palatable to too many people, and so then we have to decide where we're headed. Uh, Certainly, you know, kind of rooted in our um, foundation in asset policy, I think that there's a lot of momentum there. We're seeing more and more states start policies that open savings accounts for education for children at birth or at kindergarten um, that are transferring assets into those accounts to seed them um, in the belief that. Those um, that kind of engagement, those um, policy opportunities are not just about giving children money to help them actually pay for college, but really um, reinforcing this message that we tell ourselves, which is that, you know, college or or higher education of some sort is in your future. Mm -hmm. Um, It is, uh, you know, you need to uh, focus on education um, for what you can be what you want to be able to do for yourself and for your family. Um, And a lot of our work at ADI is about um, analysis that um, connects those asset holdings, those accounts, that experience of saving for one's own education and the educational gains that we see later. So you see places like, you know, the city of San Francisco opens an account for every kindergartner. Um, The state of Maine opens accounts and puts um, $500 in every account um, for a child. Child born in Maine. Not, it's not state money, but it's it's every child that's born in Maine, um, and we're seeing more of those policies pop up around the country. Right now, those ha- things are happening somewhat parallel, not really integrated with these conversations about what's the future of financial aid. But it doesn't have to be that way. We could think about, you know, how might we um, use some of our existing financial aid or higher education expenditures. We spend billions in tax credits. We you know, forego those tax revenues and don't get a lot from them um, because they mostly tend to go to families who would have sent their kids to college anyway. How could we repurpose some of that money? How could we even use really valuable programs like Pell Grants potentially more effectively if we provide them to children earlier so that they can count on? that assistance being available instead of finding out in, you know, February or April of their senior year that in fact there is some financial aid. So bringing those two kind of parallel streams together, um, there's a lot of promise um, because there's a lot of money there uh, and um, some new innovations and how we might use it. Um, But a lot of um, the kind of Questions about how we um, make some of those policy changes is going to depend on how not only policy but also really um, the debate and the kind of political momentum in each of those spheres unfolds.
1: Okay, fantastic. Well, uh, I guess the final question for us on on the new books network, we always ask uh, kind of what's what's next for you if you have anything else on on your plate, and also maybe the last word on on the book for us.
0: Yeah. Oh no, thanks. It's been so fun to talk about it. Um, you know, so we're engaged right now in some research um, in places like San Francisco and New Mexico, places that have these children's savings policies to really try to answer more definitively not only questions about um, what are the effects on academic achievement and um, kind of children's educational uh, orientation, um, but also what would it take uh, to not only develop, but then scale some of those policies and to try to have some of those conversations in the higher education and financial aid arenas. Um, we're also going to be um, working on some additional publications, including in um, the student uh, debt arena um, and in related to uh, asset policy, uh, and there are certainly looking forward to opportunities to um, you know, build some of those connections and hopefully broker somewhat what's happening in the kind of financial capability and, and asset building world um, and that, that we're from. Uh, and the higher education and financial aid world that is relatively newer to us and that the book is helping to open doors to.
1: Okay, fantastic. Well, I I do thank you for joining us today. It was quite nice to talk with you, and I just want to tell all the audience to go check out The Real College Debt Crisis, How Student Borrowing Threatens Financial Well-Being and Erodes the American Dream, uh, Dr. William Elliott, who's to be here today, but we also have the co-author Melinda Lewis. Thank you very much, and uh, to all the audience, uh, I hope you learned.